You're listening to a message from Christian Life Ministries in Coventry, a dynamic, growing church in the heart of the nation. We pray that God will speak to you through this word and impact your life for His glory. Is it, is it working? Oh, good. Can you hear me? Great, great, great. And I hope you can see me. I'm not a very tall guy. And so sometimes people do struggle. Great to be with you. Great to welcome you here in the room. And I understand there are a number of people watching online. So I can't see you online, although it would be interesting if I did. I'd see all these people in their pajamas with a bowl of cereal. Come back to church. I'm sure somewhere, even though Martin and Esther are resting, they may well have tuned in to this service. So if you guys are online, Martin and Esther, love you very much. And thank you for the invitation to be here with the folks at CLM. It's great to be with you and to share God's Word this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn to Matthew chapter 20. I'm going to be reading from verses 1 to 19, and that will be the text for me today. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn. And the disturbing thing about a moment like this is that usually, back in the day in church, when I said that, there'll be a rustle all across the building. But now with technology, iPads and I don't know, tablets and iPhone, there's nothing. You just, you just silence when you say turn in your Bible. Well, I don't mind the use of technology. All I pray is that God will be with you when your batteries die. So just, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> Are you there? Okay, verse one. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. Said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth hour, the ninth hour, he did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle. And said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said, it's because nobody has hired us. He said, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when they came, those who were hired about the seventh hour, eleventh hour, they each earned a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received a denarius. And when they'd received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who were born the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, am I doing you no wrong? Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first, first last. Many are called, but few chosen. And when Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the 12 uh, disciples aside on the road, and he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests, to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And they will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge him and to crucify him. And the third day, He will rise again. Father, I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus that you make this word clear and plain to us today. The parable and the gospel of the kingdom, it needs to be clear in all of our hearts. However long we've been on this journey, 
however long we've walked with you. Maybe we've just started in the last few weeks and months, but however long the journey's been, we need to be clear on how the kingdom works and what the priorities are in your own heart and purpose for our lives. Make it plain today and may the power of your Holy Spirit take this word deep, deep into our hearts for the honor and glory of Jesus' name. Amen. I started my reading in, in uh, chapter 20, verses 1 to 19, but I think it actually may be connected to the previous chapter. A question arises in that chapter because Jesus is coming to the region and uh, there's lots of contention. The Pharisees are asking difficult questions about divorce and remarriage and they know it's such a hot potato debate that whatever side of the argument you're on, you're going to get into trouble with somebody. There was a a rich young ruler who was so close to the kingdom, but because of his attachment to material and financial security, he was unable to make that step that made him a believer and a faith follower of Christ. There was all kinds of things going on. In the midst of it all, Peter asks a question and says, listen, we have given up everything. We've given up all of our riches. We've given up our businesses. We've given up our opportunities. And that which would have been an advantage to us. So what do we get for following you? That's a great question. What do we get? What's the benefit of this radical commitment that we've made to follow you, Jesus. Just exactly what do we get? And so Jesus speaks to them and says, listen, there's nobody going to be shortchanged in following me. People have given up land and houses and fields and money. Listen, they're going to be wonderfully rewarded with profile and power. You guys are going to be ruling over nations. You're going to have a great privilege in kingdom things. And you won't be out of pocket. God's going to bless and prosper you for the service that you've given. So he goes on to tell this story about the landowner because he wants them to be clear on what you really get when you serve Christ, when you make a radical commitment to this gospel. Now, the passage is interesting because it says it's a parable or a story of the kingdom. He says the kingdom of heaven is like this. And when Jesus is talking, listen, I've got a red letter Bible here today. And uh, if you were to take all the red bits in this Bible, whether it's in the Gospels or whether in any other document in the New Testament, and you put it together and gave it a title, just those red bits, you would have to call it the kingdom of God. That's what he talked You'd have to call it the kingdom of God. So, so the miracles he worked were an illustration of this kingdom. And the stories and parables he told were an explanation of this kingdom to make sure that people really got it. And the parables are a wonderful thing to study. I wish we preached more of them in our churches. They're phenomenal. They're like an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And most of the time you read them as an earthly story and go, yeah, that's kind, of, that's kind of interesting. But if you listen carefully, there's normally a twist in the story or some kind of anomaly. Excuse me, I got my wrong. I think I borrowed my wife's dentures today. There's an anomaly in the story. And you go, hold, hold on a second. That's not quite what I was expecting. And people who, who caught that would linger behind after the teaching of Jesus and say things like, teacher, would you explain that? What do you mean by these seeds? What do you mean by these weeds? We, we know there's something more in the story than you're letting on. And their curiosity would keep them lingering for a deeper explanation. I'm wondering whether, when I read the story to you today in chapter 20, whether you saw an anomaly in the story. Did you? You probably didn't if you don't understand how business and hiring works in the first century. But some of you may have picked it up because it's very crucial to understanding this fundamental point in the kingdom about what you receive when you become a kingdom person. So Peter asks this wonderful question and Jesus tells this phenomenal story. Let me give you the background of the story so the context is very clear for you. A typical working day in this season could run from 6 a.m. 
until 6 p.m. And so observing people waiting to be hired at the time of the story, 9 o'clock in the morning, right through until the end of business. Some only came in at the last hour, 5 o'clock. They were still waiting. It wouldn't be unusual to see that. You'd see people doing that all the time. They'd have no choice. I mean, they, they were probably standing there because they weren't attached to a regular household. If you were a servant in a household, you probably wouldn't need to be out there at the labor exchange because you'd have enough work to buffer you through a tough time. But if you were an independent worker, you need to be in that line. You need to be in that line because if there's no work for you, then there's no money for you. If there's no money for you, then there's no food on your family table. No food on your family table. What do you have to take home? It's a disastrous situation. So if you see people staying in that line from 9 o'clock to 5 o'clock, waiting and waiting and waiting, they are desperate. And people who heard the story from Jesus would have been able to resonate with that picture very, very well and understand it clearly. That's not a problem. They would understand the landowner coming back again and again, especially if you've got a good piece of property, great big vineyard, and you need to get that cropping quickly, otherwise you'd lose it and lose the revenue that goes with it. So he would keep coming back and hiring people. They would understand that. Nothing strange about that. Nothing strange about hiring people even at the very last moment of the day. If you've got a big crop and you're concerned about getting that harvested, you get every hand on deck that you possibly can. So there was nothing strange about that. When it says that he hired them for a denarius, the denarius was the recognized fee for a day's work. Nothing strange about the contract. It was usual. Absolutely brilliant. And so that landowner kept coming back. He came at nine. He came at 12 noon. He came at three. He came at five. Up until that point in the story, everybody's going, gotcha. Understand that. But then something happens. The twist in the story appears when it's time for the workers to get paid. This is when it gets a little interesting. And this is where it may well have thrown a number of Bible readers or Bible commentators as they read the story. Because when we're reading stories about the kingdom, we normally think, like I did in my little Baptist church where I became a Christian, the teachers that I had experienced taught about the kingdom in its futuristic terms. The end of the age, the cessation of human experience and human existence as we now know it. That was what their thinking was about kingdom. And I think to myself, well, that futuristic explanation doesn't work very well for this story. I just don't see heaven being a wage dispute. Do you? Can you imagine what would, that people would complain and, and about their reward and say to God, I don't think you've been fair. I don't think you've handled this right. I think you've got this wrong. I'm looking at the story going, no, I don't think a future application or what uh, Bible scholars would call an eschatological, end of the age discussion. I, I can't see that framework really working well for this story at all. Heaven's not going to be a wage dispute. I just can't think of Moses standing up and saying, God, I'm standing in the queue here next to the, uh, to the thief on the cross. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, he did suffer a little bit, but I, I was in the desert 40 years, come on. <laughs> you know I mean? I mean, yeah, I know he died, but those stiff-necked people, they killed me every day. <laughs> God, please, surely I should be getting a different reward to him. See, the workers in the story thought there should have been a wage differential based on two things. Number one, the length of time they'd worked. They came in at nine o'clock. Some people came in at five. Surely there should be some differentials in terms of compensation. And also, we've worked through a different condition of labor. They came in towards the end of the day. We worked through the heat of the day, the pressure of the midday sun. We had all of that. They didn't have all that pressure and difficulty. Surely our wages should show 
a deeper appreciation for what we've worked through and how long we've worked. And I guess those listening to the story of Jesus felt some sympathy with the complaints. They probably thought, those people may have a point, you know. They may well have a point. Because it looked like the landowner hadn't quite got it right. Because he paid everybody a full day's wage. Some after nine hours and some after one hour. How could that be right? So I went into a little bit of a study for myself. See, if you study Jesus' teaching on the kingdom, you have to study it carefully because it contains reference to things which are present. But it also contains reference to things which are yet to come. And in the teaching of Jesus, there is this tension of the already and the not yet. And if you're not careful in interpreting the stories, you'll get it horribly wrong. When I look at this story, I understand this is not a story with a futuristic application. This is about kingdom here and now. This is about something already. And so what is the kingdom message in the story? See, it may have appeared that the landowner had been unfair, but I don't think that was really the case at all, especially when you look at it on reflection. See, he had honored the contractual arrangements that he'd agreed at the beginning of the day. He said to those workers from 9 o'clock, if you come, I will pay you a denarius, a day's wage. And they said, yeah, absolutely. They worked a day. He paid them exactly what he'd promised. He'd been totally just. As a matter of fact, he'd been more than just. He'd been very generous with those people because I told you, a working day begins from 6 a.m. They didn't start work until 9 a.m. So he was paying them for three hours that they hadn't worked anyway. So they, they, they probably shouldn't have been complaining the way they did. This is where the anomaly in the story kicks in and people go, well, try and work this all out. But on the other hand, he had the right, secondly, to, re, to, to pay and treat the latecomers the way he chose. He could be as generous as he wants. That was his sovereign choice. He was able to do that. And he asked them, he said, do you think you ought to be upset with me because I'm generous with my own money? Aren't I allowed to do that? Aren't I allowed to make that choice? With what's mine, aren't I allowed to make a sovereign choice about my own stuff? So when I looked at the story, I thought, in the one same act of paying everybody a denarius, that landowner, landowner had showed himself to be both just and merciful at the same time. So if the disciples had echoed the thoughts of Peter, who said, well, what do you get? When you serve Jesus radically, what do you get when you put your heart and soul into kingdom service? You get justice and you get mercy. Those are the two tram lines on which kingdom runs. So here we have it. Those are the fundamentals for the kingdom. And if we lose sight of them, we lose sight of everything. And then as they're walking around and walking on from that moment, Jesus begins to talk to them about his death. When we get to Jerusalem, it's going to be a terrible time, guys. They're going to hand me over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be scourged, crucified. I will die. It's going to be a very difficult time. He begins to put focus on his death and on the cross. And I think if you read it, you might just think it's been slotted in as a piece of history for the story. But actually, it has context for the story. Because in that one act of the cross of Christ, God has shown himself to be both just and merciful at the same time. It's a brilliant Brilliant piece of storytelling. A phenomenal insight for those who have the time to listen. 
Because this is what the kingdom is all about. So when it comes to the cross of Christ, there was a Godward aspect to the cross for justice and a manward aspect of the cross for mercy. When it comes to the Godward aspect of the cross, well, this will be about satisfying God's wrath and anger towards sin. And he is a God who can get angry. You need to understand who he is. We don't just understand the attributes of God. We need to understand the attitudes of God too. If you tell me there's a guy coming to my house tomorrow night, he's six foot seven. He weighs several hundred pounds more than me. He's got fists the size of tanks. I would want to know, is he mild-mannered? Is he kind? Is he gentle? Because you want to know something about the attitudes and not just the attributes of the person that's being described. When we talk about this God of great kindness and the God of the universe who creates all things with the word of his power, I want to know what he's like. I want to tell people the truth about what he's like. He is gentle, loving, kind, compassionate, sensitive, and gentle. He really is like that. But he also can get angry. He doesn't fly off the handle, but he can be offended. And when it comes to human sinfulness and rebellion, it's something that does offend God. We don't tell people this story enough. In Psalm 78, it says, For they provoked him to anger with their high places, with their compromised worship with the displacement of him, where they didn't worship him and honor him as they should. It says they provoked him to anger. In Joshua chapter 7 verse 1, it says, The anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. Look, very clear that God is going to judge that which offends him very strongly with great uh, uh, strength and, 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 and very, in a robust manner. But for some of us, the concept of a God who's angry is just too much to handle. Most churches don't want to talk about it anymore. It's just ignored, never spoken about. Or it's kind of viewed as just the outcome of sin. The only hell you're ever going to experience is the hell you live in because you made bad decisions for your life. Nothing more, nothing to worry about. There's nothing beyond death to be considered. Or sometimes when we talk about God as an angry God, people say, you know what, you're being too anthropomorphic. And that means you're taking human expressions and human uh, experiences of anger or emotions and applying them to God. Maybe we shouldn't do that. That distorts who he is. And so we dismiss all of that talk about a God who can get angry. I can't dismiss that from Scripture. I can't dismiss the fact that there's a God who will deal with that which offends him. There are writers today who've written off the idea that there's a hell and there's eternal punishment. They, They just can't handle the idea that that could ever happen to human beings. The truth is if you preach a gospel without that element in it, you haven't preached the true gospel. We love to preach the good news, but the issue is what's that count? What's the counterpart? If there's good news, then what's the bad news? There has to be bad news somewhere. And so I don't like preaching about hell. I don't like talking about people having an eternity outside of Christ and in the midst of darkness away from God's grace, love, and and compassion. I, I hate preaching about that. I really do hate. Ask my church. If I have to preach about it, it's a difficult moment for me. Who can relish the concept of human beings being banished for an eternity from the presence and the love and the grace of God? Actually, hell wasn't designed for human beings. The scriptures are very clear. That was to be a place of incarceration for rebellious angels. The devil and his angels will be going to that space. The only reason human beings end up there is because they don't want heaven on God's terms. Hear me carefully. Everybody wants heaven. I said they didn't want heaven on God's terms. And so actually, God didn't send people to hell. And he doesn't. They send themselves. Because they choose something that's not 
in line with what he would desire. So I'm saying to myself, wow, the wrath of God and his just treatment on sin has to be dealt with. It can't be ignored. But what a tragedy it is when it falls on the shoulders of human beings themselves. Jesus took upon himself the full force of God's wrath against sin. This is the good news. As a substitute for us, he faced for us what we couldn't face for ourselves. The judgment of God and the justice of God fell on him rather than on us. So in Galatians 3 or 1 Peter 3, it says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 1 Peter 3 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. In his death, Jesus suffered the demands of divine justice that sin be punished. He deflected this anger away from us because it would have destroyed us. God dealt with sin by resting its judgment on the shoulders of his son. Somebody in this room needs to say, thank you, God, that that didn't fall on me, that you chose in your kindness and extravagant compassion to have somebody else carry that which I was really indebted to pay. Judgment was given. Justice has been displayed. But I told you in the same act of justice is also the act of mercy. So God deals with the issue of sin, but what does he do with the sinner in the midst of that story? And that's the manward aspect of the cross. The manward aspect of the cross teaches us about the release of mercy and forgiveness. Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, and Romans 5. Listen to these texts. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in the parable, some workers were freely given what they didn't deserve. They hadn't earned it. They'd only worked for an hour of the day. They were paid a full day's wage. No, they didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. But they got what they desperately needed. Justice gives you what you deserve. But mercy gives you not what you deserve, but what you need. And in the midst of reflecting on human brokenness, the rebelliousness of our hearts, the waywardness, of the, uh, of the decisions that human beings have made. It's, it's incredible. What we really deserve is the judgment that fell on Christ. But what we needed was the mercy that came through the cross. The forgiveness, the redemptive reconciliation that God offers every rebellious heart. The fact that he will look at our record and see that we've made a train wreck of our lives. It goes back many, many generations. And says, I am willing to wipe from your record every mark of wrongdoing that you have been a part of I'm cleansing your record in fact this isn't just about a new start in life but it's like having a whole new life to start over you really can be born again this is gospel 
This is gospel. And I'm telling you, when people get the revelation of these things in their minds, our worship goes to a different level. When we understand what we have been given in Christ, what we have been gifted in Christ, how gracious and kind and compassionate God has been to us, the depth of his mercy and love and forgiveness, the absolute power of a record of wrongdoing that's completely expunged, that there is no, nothing to look back on. And you know, as far, as far as the east is from the west, it's as far as he's removed our transgression from us. At some point, north becomes south, but east never becomes west. God says, I've moved it away from you, and I've moved it away from you forever. You now have the joy and the courage and the confidence of coming into my presence without fear of being received. You're not looking over your shoulder or trying to drive your life by constantly looking in the rearview mirror. That's not you anymore. Your past is forgiven. Your history is cleansed. Your destiny is secure. Or somebody ought to give God the highest praise for what he's done. This is the good news. And it's so much bigger than what most people understand. You see, if I understand what the benefits of mercy are, I see them in these four ways, and I'll conclude this morning. Mercy gives me complete forgiveness from historic sins. And upon authentic confession, my current sins too. I'm in the process of sanctification, this ongoing process of moral transformation if I should fall and stumble the Bible says if I confess my sins he's faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness not only has I, have I been justified but I'm being sanctified ultimately to be glorified what a wonderful thing it's good to study Christian doctrine it really is but the challenge in that text of 1 John 1 verse 9 is this if we confess our sins while we're currently growing and developing in Christ if we confess our sins he's faithful and just to forgive us which means unconfessed sin in the life of a believer is unforgiven sin. That's why we're encouraged. If we're doing things which are wrong and inappropriate, deal with that stuff quickly. In the book of Ephesians, Paul says, Don't, if you're angry, sin not. But if you're in that process, you need to get that dealt with before the sun comes down. Don't leave this 24 period, hour period to spill into the next one where there's unresolved issues of wrongdoing and sin in your life as a believer. Deal with this quickly. And if we are faithful and authentic in our confession, the promise is that God will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And our journey continues. Complete forgiveness. What an expression of mercy. The second thing that happens as a benefit of mercy is that you get a brand new nature. A new life. I told you it's possible to be born again. Some people have said to themselves, if only I could start over again. If I'd lived my life again. Hey, the good news is you can. The good news is you really can because of the kindness of God. And he gives us a new nature which is empowered by the Holy Spirit with new desires and new characteristics of fruit. What a wonderful thing. The old life I used to have where I, I you know, it was so easy to do wrong. With that old nature. It's like the, uh, the game of bowls. You know, I'm telling my age now. If any of you play bowls and they play that ball down the green and trying to hit the little white jack. I used to watch that as a kid. Wondering how they made that ball curve. I just, I wondered how they did it, Mark. I tried it with tennis balls and table tennis balls and cricket balls and footballs and basketballs. To try and roll it and make it curve. I could never do it. Just went straight. Until I came to London and there was a guy who was so crazy about playing bowls. And I said to him... How, how do you get this ball to curve like that? He said, oh, it always curves. 
There's no way you can't curve because inside this ball is a weight called a bias. It doesn't matter how straight you try and roll it, that weight makes it curve. That's part of the skill needed for this game. I went, oh my gosh, no wonder I couldn't get it. But I thought that illustration will preach because buried in the human nature is a bias towards wrongdoing. And it doesn't matter how straight we try and walk, we end up. So thank God we can get a nature that doesn't have that bias. We can be born again, and anybody that's in Christ, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, is a brand new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become brand new. Wow. The third promise that you get from mercy is the promise of a new body and eternal peace, free from the fear of God's wrath. That's the book of Romans chapter 8. that tells us that the whole of creation is watching us Because creation knows that God has begun the work of a new creation in you and me. And we're waiting for for the fulfillment of that. Part of that fulfillment is to get a brand new body. Those of you who are sitting here this morning with the pain in your body through arthritis and just wear and tear of old age are saying, thank you, Jesus. I can't wait for that to happen. And it's coming. Brand new body. One that doesn't die and doesn't wake up with pain and aches and creaks and shakes. How about that? Brand new heaven, brand new earth, and for us, brand new bodies to live in a brand new creation. That's so much bigger than Sunday service. That's so much bigger than singing a few songs, taking an offering, watching a news bulletin. It's massive. We need to understand the big picture of what we've been invited to, to be a part of a church community. It's not just sitting here on a Sunday and going through these religious motions. The story is huge. You're part of a reconfigured, renovated cosmos. It's huge. God is spring cleaning the entire universe. And we're a sign that he's already begun his work. Enjoy that kind of thinking. So when you're looking at news bulletins with crazy dictators blowing up territories that they don't own, with pandemics and sickness and confusions, with people's identity crisis about who they really are and who they're not in terms of their gender, You can live in our world and absolutely grieve at the confusion and turmoil that we're currently a part of. Or you can say, this is now, but the best is yet to come. And those are the people who live with hope, expectation, and a passion for life, even in the midst of its most grim moments. So whether you have great days or great days, you don't lose hope. Because mercy says the best is yet to come. And I love the fact that the book of Revelation tells us that we have this promise of inclusion in the new life of the new heaven and the new earth. And who knows what happens then. It's not really entered into the heart of men and women what what God's prepared for those who love him. But we know it's going to be spectacular. It's going to be phenomenal. And we're going to be a part of that. We're going to have inclusion in that because of his justice and his mercy. What do we get? Go back to Peter's question. What do you get? For radical commitment, you get all this. This is all waiting for those who love and honor the Lord. And that's what fuels and fires up worship like you wouldn't believe. If you really believe this, you'll be dancing on your seat every Sunday. Because it's mind-blowing and extraordinary. This is the kingdom. And it's the kingdom of which you are now a part through Christ Jesus. If you aren't a part of this kingdom yet, you should be. The invitation is yours, and 
Many are called. The opportunity is given to everybody who hears a message like this. That if they're willing to part company with their sin and follow God's heart and serve him and his purposes, he promises them new life, a new start in life, a new life to start, a new heart, a new future, and a freedom from fear and condemnation. That's the promise of the kingdom. And I want you to be a part of that story. Would you bow your heads and let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for being able to share the gospel in this church. For people who have heard it and some who haven't, some who are online, never heard the truth of the gospel. It's maybe the first time that they've heard that the invitation for new life, new hope, new health, new heart is being given to men and women all across this world. This morning they're hearing it and it's their opportunity to respond. I pray for everybody under the sound of my voice that they will enter into a relationship with you that grants them the new life that Paul said we could have. That if anybody finds themselves in Christ, anybody who surrenders to his purposes and life-giving agenda will discover they have become a brand new person in Christ. That old things have passed away and that something new and glorious has begun for the honor and splendor of his name. Amen.